Well, it's, it's hard to believe that it has been 20 years since the release of the movie The Matrix. And this made me feel very old when I realized it had been 20 years. I'm like, wow, I still think of that as like a, a new release, you know, well, that was a few years back. No, it was 1999. And uh, if you're not familiar with the movie The Matrix, the, the basic premise of the film is that the, the world we live in and that we see is actually not real. That it's actually a computer simulation. And that the real world uh, is, is actually uh, dominated by machines. And they have sort of taken control of the world. And there's only a small segment of humanity really left. And what the machines do is they, they keep humanity sort of uh, in, this, in, these, in these fields where they're hooked up to these machines that actually just we provide energy for the machines. And so the story is about how this remnant of humanity um, uh, try to uh, rescue the human race from this delusion that they're living in the real world. Uh, and of course, Keanu Reeves, the the main star in it. It's, it's 20 years since he uttered those iconic words, whoa, I know Kung Fu. As he gets a, an immediate download of all the Kung Fu systems into his, into his head. So it's, it's a pretty cool film if you've not seen it. It was groundbreaking in many ways. But the basic premise of that story, the fact that what you see and experience here may not be all there really is, is actually a very uh, kind of real, uh, what can I say? It's, a, it's actually a, a reality that we face in our life. And we got a taste of it here as we read this story this morning, right? Uh, if you were here last week, we had Teen Challenge with us, and that was a wonderful uh, time of, of testimony. And what happened was I decided to chop this message into two to make it a two-part uh, sermon because we really sort of ran out of time last week. And so I want to pick up where we were last week and just give us a basic synopsis of the story that we just read this morning. So we're told that the king of Aram, which is <clears throat> basically modern day Syria, is at war with Israel. Funny how some things never change. And um, really what this meant is it took the, uh, the form of the Arameans doing systematic raids on Israel in their camps. And we're told that the man of God, which is Elisha, the prophet, would warn the king of Israel uh, each time there was a planned raid uh, as to where they were located. So they would never be there when the Arameans tried to to attack. And so you can imagine for the king of Aram, this must have been really frustrating. You know, it's like, what is going on here? And he would uh, reasonably assume we must have a spy or a traitor in our midst who is informing the Israelites of our battle plans. And, but the men assure him, no, it's not us. We promise you it's not us. But there is a man they have, a prophet called Elisha, who, as it says in verse 12, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. And so really what's going on is that we're being shown that Elisha is getting supernatural knowledge from the Lord about the plans of the king of Aram. So we read that, the king of Aram says, okay, so what we need to do is we've got to capture Elisha. If we get Elisha, he can't be giving the information to the Israelites, and then we'll be able to attack them. And so we're informed that Elisha is in the city of Dothan. And they go by night, and they surround the city of Dothan. And then we're told, aren't we, that they wake up in the morning, 
And the servant says to Elisha, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? And Elisha says, Do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. And then we're told the the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And what did he see? He looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's an amazing, an amazing story. One I find so inspiring because of the reminder of what is really out there and what is really surrounding and protecting us. And so last week we talked about the different ways or perspectives to look at the trials and struggles we have in life. There was the perspective of the servant who's filled with fear and anxiety and panic. And then there's the perspective of the prophet Elisha who is calm and collected and has complete trust and confidence in the Lord, doesn't he? And then I asked you last week, I asked you this question, which are you? Are you the servant or are you Elisha? In those situations, who do you naturally default to? Are you more of the servant, the panicker, the anxiety? How how are we going to get out of this? Ah, Or are you the the Elisha who, who trusts in the Lord? We also talked about how ultimately the battles we are going through in our everyday lives are not ultimately ours. They're the Lord's. And that we need to give those battles to him. We need to surrender those battles to him and let him fight them. You know, there's a part of us that wants to kind of hold on to what we're going through in life. We don't want to surrender it to the Lord. But that's exactly what we need to do. Because the Lord tells us the battle is not yours, it's mine. And I want to add this week that often what holds us back from doing that is this is this funny sort of twisted pride that thinks it's weak of us or cowardly of us to admit we can't win this fight on our own, that we can't fight our own battles. There's a pride in us that says, no, I can't admit that I am actually defeated by this in and of myself. But what we need to do is, folks, we need to humble ourselves. And we need to come to a point where we can say, you know what, Lord, I give up. I give up. I'm done. And I give it to you. And when you do that, you put your battle in the hands of a far superior force. You know, Toza said, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. And it's true. Often the Lord will put us through trials and struggles in our lives because in a way, he's trying to prepare and train us to use us more deeply. But he needs to know that we are battle ready. That we can, we can, we can withstand what's going to come against us because we have come to rely on the Lord. You know, the militaries of the world um, <clears throat> all have their, their special forces. Right? They're, they're super trained warriors of the military. Um, Russia has what's called the Alpha Group. The British has the SAS. Uh, Israel has the uh, Sayeret Matkal. Um, here in the US, we have uh, some, some amazing special forces, right? You know, the, the Green Berets, the Army Rangers, the Marines, the Navy SEALs, the Delta Force, 
Air Force Special Tactics, you name it. These are highly, highly trained forces. And as amazing as all those special forces are, we have a unique special force fighting for us. And it's called God's Angelic Army. And it's led by the Lord of the Heaven's Armies. This is a fiery host of angels that no earthly force can stand against. And that's what we have behind us. Do you realize that? We have an angelic force fighting for us. Fighting the battles in our life. But we have to relinquish command. We have to say, you know what? I am not the best strategic officer for this. I'm not the best general for the battles of my life. I need to surrender it to the Lord of Heaven's armies. And to let him take control of the battle. We have an army of angels who is with us day in, day out. And you know, the Bible mentions, it mentions actually at least four types of angels. We have angels, regular angels. That word, by the way, it also means messenger. Um, But we also have archangels. And we have seraphim and cherubim that are specifically mentioned. And there are also other spiritual forces that are mentioned in the Bible, such as thrones, rulers, powers and principalities and seraphim seraphim is the plural of seraph and it means burning or fiery one so my suspicion is in this passage we just read that when um, Elisha sees the hills aflame with fiery chariots and horses these were seraphim that had come to fight for them there's, a, uh, <clears throat> there's a, an amazing legend from World War I. And it's called the legend of the, the angels of Mons. And Mons is a, uh, a, a town in Belgium. And the story goes, and there are documented accounts of this, that during World War I, it was the first year of World War I, 1914. So it was early on in the war. And the British expeditionary forces were, were in battle against the Germans in the town of Mons. And they had been outflanked by the Germans. And they were, they were taking a rough hit and they were on the retreat. And they were really, the British army were really in a bad place as the Germans were advancing on the British. And the story goes that as the British were retreating, the Germans, German forces suddenly halted with a look of, of terror on their face. And they recoiled and they stopped pursuing the British army. And the British army was able to retreat and save countless numbers. And there's various accounts of what happened. Um, and, it, and here is one. It says, in the night of the 26th, this would have been in, it was in August of 1914. The third day of the retreat west through Belgium, weary British soldiers saw tall, unearthly figures materialize in the gloom above the German lines. They were winged like angels, and they hovered in the gathering darkness. The Germans inexplicably halted, and the British slipped away to safety. The report continues. Three soldiers were interviewed separately by the vicar of a church near Keswick in the north of England. All agreed that a miracle had saved them from a massive German force about to overrun their unit. As the hard-pressed British troops prepared to fight to the end, the Germans suddenly recoiled. 
German prisoners explained that the attack was aborted because they saw strong British reinforcements coming up. In fact, the ground behind the British unit was empty. The men interviewed had no doubt who authored their salvation. It was God did it, they said. That's an incredible story right there. Of angelic intervention. And it's a reminder to us, whether, whether that story is legend or true, it's a reminder to us that there is more going on around us than we could possibly realize. And you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because while, while many of us profess to be Christians, and we believe in the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture, how many of us really live our lives with a supernatural perspective? I mean, come on, let's be honest. You know, how many of us really, really take those things to heart and believe, you know what, there, there, there is angelic forces, yes, and demonic forces around us right now. How many of us really believe that? Or do we live our lives with a, with a closed view? I mean, we know in theory, right, if we call ourselves Christians and we believe in, in Jesus and we believe in his way, we know in theory that these things are true. But I mean, come on, let's, let's get back to the real world, shall we, folks? I mean, you know, that's for, for stories and legends and, you know, nice Bible stories. Does it really change our perspective on life? Well, the fact is that there are many people who, like the servant we just read about, are walking around in blindness. Spiritual blindness. They are, they are fumbling in the dark, trying to stumble through life, but feeling no direction or purpose in life because they cannot see. The scripture says they have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. And the reason I believe so many people have so little direction in life is because they are literally doing that. They are stumbling around trying to wonder where they are going. Have you ever been in a completely dark room, and you're trying to find the light switch, and you're like, you know, and you, you, know, you suddenly realize, wow, I was really off as to where the light switch is. Or you're trying to find the doorknob, right? And, and you're in complete blindness, and it's quite a, 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 a scary feeling, isn't it? Because you don't know where you're going. And that is the case with so many people today. They are spiritually blind. And part of this blindness is, is a deliberate choice by people. Okay, have you, have you noticed there are people that you try to share the gospel with or you try to talk to about deeper things? And they're, they're like, no, 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 I don't, no, no, don't want to go there. You know, let, let's talk about the socks or whatever. Okay, but there is, for many, there is a, a, a willful ignorance, right? Ignorance is bliss kind of attitude that many take. Um, listen to what it says in, this is the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And Paul writes, for, the, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So you hear, you hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying, if you look around and willfully and deliberately choose to say no, he says, that is your choice. You are willingly making that. He's saying, you don't have an excuse to deny the creator. 
Because his glory and wonder is all around us. But he goes on. And Paul, he says in chapter, uh, verse 21 of Romans, uh, chapter 1, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's that word again, darkened. So Paul's saying there's a futility and a blindness that comes upon us when we willfully choose to deny our Creator. So while there's, there's a part where people have a willful choice in what they do and in their own blindness, there's, there's also spiritual forces at work that want to keep us in the dark. Okay, so we, we, we have a two, sort of two-pronged attack here. There's our own sort of willful ignorance, and then there's also the attack of spiritual forces, attacks by the enemy. In a sense, we, we literally have forces working against us to keep us in the dark. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says, verse, chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, so listen to that. The God of this age, that's, that's Satan, that's the devil. And here we are told that one of Satan's most effective strategies is to blind people to the light of the gospel. Yeah? There are so many people who are blinded to the light of the gospel. Why? Why, why would he want to blind us to the, the light of the gospel? Because the gospel, as we're told here, displays the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus, who is the image of God. So in a nutshell, he doesn't want you to find God. That's what it comes down to. That's, it, that's his number one scheme. If I can keep you from finding God, from coming to God through Jesus, job well done. You can fumble around in the darkness. You can live your life in the matrix, thinking that this is your real existence. And my work is done. It's terrifying when you think there are, there are, mil- there are billions of people in the world right now. There are people we know and love within our family, within our friends, our work colleagues, people where we live and eat who are in darkness. And folks, this, this is where we, the church, come in. Okay? This is where we, the church, come in. We, God's church, the people of God, the bride of Christ, we are the ones called to share the gospel with the blind so that they might see and start walking in the light instead of the darkness. We are called to help bring people out of darkness. Do you realize that's what one of the essential functions of the church is that? is to share the gospel. It's not to sit here on Sunday mornings and hear a nice message and some nice songs and then just go back to your, your regular life six days of the week and then come back here on, on Sunday. That is, that is not what church is about. This is a small part of it to exhort us, to send us out, to do the work of Christ, to share that light with the world. And I know, look, I know, it can be challenging, can't it? How intimidating and scary is it to share the gospel with somebody? By the way, why is it scary and intimidating? Do you have a problem sharing with somebody how amazing a book you just read is? Or how amazing a movie is? Or how amazing this exercise class you just went to was? 
Those are all things you love and have a passion for. Why are we so intimidated to share the gospel with people? Why are we so intimidated to say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe the gospel is what we all need in our lives. It's scary and it's intimidating because there's power in it. And it's the only thing that truly has power. And we have an enemy working against us who wants to keep people in the dark. But I know it's intimidating. And I'm saying that as a pastor. This is, this is one of my primary roles, to share the gospel. And I find it hard and intimidating. But we are called to do it. The problem is, isn't it, that often <clears throat> a challenge is that people don't want to be helped, do they, sometimes? You know, there's a, there's a mentality of, I'm good. No, I'm fine. You know, as I've said before, the New England mentality of, I'm all set. Right? Hey, can I? No, I'm all set. I got this. Are you sure? No. No, I don't need your help. You sure? Yep. And I actually, early on, when I had just moved to the United States, I think it was my first year here in the U.S., I got a taste of this, of this New England, I'm all set, snarly gruffness. <clears throat> One time when I was on the, uh, I was on the tee, and I was at Park Street Station, and I was waiting to get the red line to Harvard, to Harvard Square. And I'm at Park Street, and it's a busy, uh, it was probably, yeah, the evening commute. So there's a lot of people around. And I noticed that there was, um, just slightly off to my right, there was a, there was a blind woman um, waiting for the train like the rest of us. And, you know, understand at this point, this is 20 years back, and I was terribly more British than I am now. It's very polite very friendly and very chummy. And um, in my British politeness, I thought I would offer some assistance to this, to this lady. And I said, um, excuse me, would you, would you like some help getting on the train? There lay the mistake. <laughs> I most certainly would not. I am fine. I'm able to get on this train on my own. And she really gave me a piece of her mind. And I'm, I'm just gradually shrinking and sort of apologize. I'm, I'm sorry, I was just trying to help. And of course, people who can't hear the conversation, this just looks like I'm harassing a blind woman. It's like, no, I'm really, I'm trying to help. But um, she had this attitude of, I'm fine, I don't need your help. I can get on the train. And in her case, she was right. She'd obviously done this a thousand times, and she had found what I was doing very patronizing. And looking back, I can understand that. But if, I think she could have been a little gentler because it was coming from the best of places. But nonetheless, there was this attitude of, I am fine, I don't need your help. In her case, that was a fair point. But for many of us, we have that same attitude when it comes towards our eternal life. Many people, even within the church, are like, I'm all set, I'm fine. No, I don't need to go deeper with the word. No, I don't need to pray more. No, I don't need to repent more. I'm fine just the way I am. And of course, for people who don't believe, it's even harder. But the fact is, as the church, we we are called to co-labor with the Lord to win souls for his kingdom. And what I'm asking you to do as the church is to, to start changing your mindset a little bit about what we, the church, are called to do. Okay? We are called to help save souls. And we are called to live in that reality 
that has fiery chariots and horses at our side to fight our battles and the battles of others. That's why we pray with faith. When we have somebody that uh, breaks our heart because we so fervently want them to come to the Lord, we have to pray in faith and believe that the Lord of heaven's armies can do it. And he can do whatever's going on in your lives right now that is challenging you. But we have to be co-laborers. So how can we co-labor with God to win souls? How can we do this? Well, number one, we need to understand that God alone opens eyes. You can't open somebody's eyes of your own power. God alone does that. And on top of that, guess what? He does open eyes. We just read that in this story today. God alone can open eyes, and he does open eyes. God opened the eyes of the servant, didn't he? So he could see those flaming horses and chariots. So number two, our role is that, just like Elisha, we have the same role as Elisha. What did Elisha do in that story? He prayed. That was the main action Elisha took there. Verse 17 says, And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. Don't you love it when prayers are that simple? Lord, would you please do this? Boom, done. He does answer prayers when they are the right prayers. And God responded. We are to do the same. We are called, we're all called to be Elisha's. Do you realize that? We are called to be an Elisha in somebody else's life, to pray for them. And, and you know what? We forget something. We forget that all of us, all of us in this room, were born spiritually blind. When we came into this world, we were all blind and lost. And the only reason that our eyes have been opened... Is because God has done it, and God has done it most likely through someone's prayers for you. Do you realize that? That the reason you can see and your eyes have been opened, if you're a believer, is most likely because there was somebody in your life who was praying for you. It might have been your mother, it might have been your father, it might have been an aunt or an uncle, it may have been a school teacher, a music teacher, a sports coach. Somebody somewhere prayed for you that your eyes would be opened, and they were. And it's our job to do the same thing. Charles Spurgeon said, when we received our spiritual sight, it was mainly because others had been praying for us. We are called to do the same. So there's three things I want you to take away from today's piece of scripture. Number one, there is a spiritual reality and existence that is real. And cannot be seen while we are still spiritually blind. It's real, folks. And one day we're going to get the shock of our lives because what we know theoretically, we'll be like, whoa. (laughs) That British pastor back then, he was actually right. (laughs) Number two, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Them being our enemies, our trials in life. And because of that, give your battle to the Lord and let him fight it. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. I love it. It says this. 
It says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Do not be afraid of this vast army. It's not even like, oh, it's kind of an impressive army. No, vast army, overwhelming. You're done without him. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then thirdly, and this is so important for us folks, we, the church, are called to co-labor with the Lord by sharing the gospel with others and praying that their eyes might be opened. Let's pray. Father, we need, we need your power. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us, Lord, to boldly go out there, to share our faith, to proclaim the gospel, to let other people know that there is a way out of the darkness. Lord, we lift up to you those, the countless people we know in our lives who are walking in blindness right now, Lord. Lord, we want them to be able to see the way, the truth, and the life that is you, Jesus. Would you help us as the church to fulfill that mission? And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the great army that fights for us day in, day out. And that all we need to do is surrender to you, Lord. Is to say, Lord, take control of the fight because I can't win it. We place all our, all our battles and our trials and our struggles in your hands right now, Lord. We give them to you. Just give them to the Lord right now. and Say, Lord, take my battle. Fight for me. We declare victory in Jesus' name of whatever's going on in your life right now. And through that trust that he is able to do all things. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.